Our sermon text this morning comes from the book of Genesis, the very beginning of your Bibles, Genesis chapter 2. And we will be looking at verses 18 through 25. Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs, closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is God's word. You may be seated. Lord, as we look to your word this morning, we know that you have something for us to to glean. We know that you've intentionally, in your wisdom and your providence, put this text in the word that you have preserved for us down through the ages. Show us what is meant here. Teach us, Lord. In Christ's name we ask this. Amen. Well, chapter 2 of Genesis, at least this, this second part, verses 4 through the end, it's kind of interesting in some ways, because when it comes to just telling the story of creation, it isn't really necessary. I know that sounds blasphemous, but, but just think about it. After all, think about what we have in chapter 1 already provided for us. The creation of humanity and female is there in chapter 1. I'm sorry, humanity as male and female is there in chapter 1. That that blessing of of be fruitful and multiply, that's there in chapter 1. It's already summarized for us. Really, the, the Lord could have, if he had chosen, he could have given us chapter 1. We would have seen marriage. We would have seen what... Humanity is supposed to be doing, and then they, he could have gone straight to chapter 3. And at the beginning of the chapter 3, there could be some sort of introduction, something about the man and the woman were put in the garden, and that there's a, there's a tree they're not supposed to eat. And we would have been none the wiser for what we were missing. But that's not how God did it. God, by the Holy Spirit, breathed out chapter 2 for us. So our job as good Bible readers and good God listeners seeking the Lord is to simply ask why. What's so important about this chapter? What is so important about the way that the man is made and the way that the woman is created? And what's so important about the way that they are brought together in marriage that we, that we would have missed if we only had chapter 1? And I think that's just it. God so wants us to see the beauty and the priority of marriage in the created order that he devoted the second chapter of the first book of the Bible to this institution. Think about all of the different things that you could front load the Bible with. We've had, in the last couple weeks, people have asked me questions about angels and demons. There's nothing here about that. It would have been helpful. Only a couple paragraphs is all it would have taken, but 
The Lord chose in his wisdom not to include that. He chose in his wisdom not to include discussions about dinosaurs and woolly mammoths and all of the other questions that have come up for us in these last couple chapters. God has determined that marriage is so important that it is much, much more important than those other subjects. And so he's given us this chapter. Because marriage is no little thing. It is the institution through which God will bring the Christ. And marriage is the relationship through which God determined we would understand Christ's love for the church. So if all of the Bible is pointing towards Christ, then we should probably expect that marriage would be a first-order issue for us. And it is. It's a whole chapter. So let's study this text this morning looking to better understand God's gift of marriage because it's important to Him. So it all starts here in verse 18. If 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 you're with us for the first time, we just go verse by verse. So we'll be starting in chapter 2, verse 18. I'll put it on the screen for you, but you can also look in your Bibles that are in the pew backs or on your phone Bible or the Bible that you brought with you. So look at verse 18. It all starts here. And the Lord makes this observation that it is not good for the man to be alone. See that in verse 18? Now, I I want you to know this is not new information for God. It's not as if the Lord made the man and then observed something that he forgot to include. Something that was wrong with his creation. It wasn't a mistake. This is not a mistake that God realized. All right? God doesn't realize anything. He doesn't doesn't come to know anything. God knows the end from the beginning, and he does not make mistakes. God made the man knowing that the man lacked a counterpart. The person who doesn't know what he lacks is the man. And you can withhold all of the jokes about our lack of self-awareness as men. That's not the point here. What we're seeing, though, in this passage is a a glimpse into why God, in his wisdom, has chosen to do something the way that he has. We're seeing God's unfolding wisdom for us, something he's revealing to us if we look carefully. God could have made the man and the woman at the same time. In fact, Genesis 1 sort of implies that. Genesis 2 says, no, there's more details here. God did it this way. He makes the man alone. And then God shows him what it is to be alone, what it is to be in need. And then he gives him a wife. The end goal here is that the man will appreciate all the more the gift of the wife. So let me show you that from the sequence of the text. Just look here with us. Uh, Verse 18, first the Lord God says, it is not good that the man should be alone. And then he says, I will make him a helper fit for him. So you're seeing the resolution from God in the future. He will make the helper. You see that? That's future, looking forward. But next verse, verse 19, the, the text says the Lord God had formed every beast. He had formed the animals, and he brought them to the man. That is past tense, isn't it? So the Lord already knows that there isn't a helper fit for the man among the creatures he has already made, which is why he says he will make one. The Lord's not trying to find a match here for the man from among the animals. We had this this toy game thing. In our kitchen, there was a magnet on the fridge that kids would play with while we were working in the kitchen. And there was an assortment of animal heads and animal bodies in the pieces. And you, and I mean by you, that the toddler, that the toddler's job was, was to match the animal head with the appropriate animal body. So when you match the cow head to the cow body, it'd play a little song for you and then tell you what sound the cow makes, right? I sometimes still sing that song because how many times? I heard that song for five years. 
But that's not what God's doing here. With this procession of the species before Adam, he's not experimenting. He's not experimenting with the man, trying to find out which of the animals corresponds to the man. Rather, he's showing the man, he's teaching the man that in all of creation, there is no one like him. The man is unique, and he is uniquely alone. So think about this. Think about what Jesus taught us about prayer. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. Matthew 6, 8. That's always been the case. Before you realize your need, God already knows it. Even from the beginning. Well, as it turns out, God is a very good teacher, and his biology and anthropology lesson is successful. Look at the end of verse 20. So all these animals come through, Adam names them all, and Adam realizes, oh, there's not one like me. For Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. For Adam, that means from Adam's perspective, there isn't anyone like him. He's come to the realization that God wanted him to realize. God shows Adam his need, and then, as we'll see in a moment, God supplies the solution. God reveals the need before he creates the solution. And we see God operating this way throughout the Scriptures. Throughout the Scriptures. In the Exodus, as you'll see in the Sunday school class very soon, Israel is brought to the Red Sea intentionally by God so that they can see their desperate need, an army behind them and an ocean or a sea in front of them. So when God opens it, they're all the more grateful for his miraculous provision through the sea. When Israel is wandering in the wilderness, the Lord allows them to become thirsty before he provides water from the rock. In the book of Judges, Israel is taught over generations to realize their need for a righteous king. Then in the book of Samuel, God provides the righteous conquering king. Again and again, the need comes before the provision. This is the way God interacts with those he loves. This is the way he brought you to faith. If you're a Christian, think of how God made himself known to you. First, through the Holy Spirit, he revealed your sin and your guilt. He convicted you of sin, showed you your inability to cleanse yourself of your own guilt, and then by his grace, revealed that he has mercifully provided forgiveness for your sin through his son. This is, this is the reason why when, when we explain the gospel to someone, we cannot separate repentance and faith. This is the reason why conviction of sin and confession and repentance are inseparable from receiving Christ as Savior. We first learn our need for Christ before we can receive him. He's not, he's not an addition. He's not an add-on to our old life. He's the replacement for our old life. This is the way the Lord operates in our life. Brings him glory. God shows the need. God does the work. God gets the glory. In our frailty, in our weakness, in our short-sightedness, our inability to see the goodness of God, we need that comparison, don't we? We need a comparison in order to know that what God gives isn't just good, it is best. Ironically, I, I think this also helps us because a big question I know a lot of us have when we're reading and studying Genesis is, why did God put Adam in the garden and do this if he knew that Adam would sin? Well, I think this concept that we're learning here helps us to understand this. In the big picture, we have to see God's, or I'm sorry, Adam's weakness in order to see Christ's greatness. This is the way God, our good teacher, works. And he reveals this pedagogy, this teaching method of his right here in chapter 2. So before we move on to, chapter, or to verse 21, though, in the next section, we need to look back at verse 18 because there's a couple of words there that we just skimmed over. 
looking at God's provision, which I think is primary. But there's a couple things. Uh, back in verse 18, when the Lord said he would make a helper fit for the man, what did he mean by that? What, is, what does it mean that the woman is a helper or would be his helper? And what does it mean that she would be fit for the man? There's a lot of theories about this, aren't, aren't there? If you've been to any marriage conference, you've heard stuff about this. I think this is one of those People can make too much of this, helper fit. Uh, but but when, when you read helper here, I want, I want us to think this morning biblically about it, theologically about it. So when you read helper, don't think servant. Most of the places that we see this word used, in the, in the Old Testament especially, have to do with the Lord helping Israel. Exact same word in the Hebrew. So Psalm 121, I lift my eyes up to the Hills, where does my help, same word, come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Again, Psalm 124, just a a few chapters later. Our help, same word, is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. So being a helper to Adam, we shouldn't think of this as as a servile position. Not if the Lord is also to be the same thing for us. The best definition for this word is this, to enable one to complete a task. It's just that simple. It's not that complicated. To enable one to complete a task. So the Lord says it's not good for the man to be alone because he will not be able to complete his task. What task? Well, the tasks from chapter 1. Particularly that be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth task. The man cannot partake in God's blessing of fruitful multiplication alone. It's not good that he be alone. He can't do this without the woman. By God's good design, a marriage between a man and a woman is his means of filling the earth and and creating new image bearers. But that's not the only task that Adam can't do alone. He also can't subdue the earth without the woman. We'll see this in chapter 3 in a few weeks. But it will be the woman through whom the offspring comes that will subdue the enemy by crushing the head of the serpent. And we see this in the Old Testament. The woman is to play a vital role in God's redemptive plan. If you skip ahead to the second part of Genesis, it is through Abraham's wife that the child of the promise will come. And then through Isaac's wife, Jacob, rather than Esau, will become the chosen one. Moving on into Exodus, a Savior will be preserved to bring Israel out of slavery through the work of the Hebrew midwives and Moses' mother and sister. You skip ahead to Joshua, and Rahab is the one helping Israel defeat Jericho. And then in, in the book of Judges, there's Deborah and Jael help Israel to crush their enemies. In 1 Samuel, Hannah gives her son Samuel to serve the Lord and restore the priestly order. And he becomes the Lord's prophet. And then it is he who anoints the chosen king. You see how the women are helpers? These are just a few of the helpers that God has foreordained to move along the history of redemption, leading all the way to Mary through whom the Spirit brought the Christ. So when you see helper here, this has a lot more to do with the tasks of subduing and filling the earth and that grand story of redemption and not so much someone to do the dishes. Okay, So we need, we need to think big picture, redemptive, historical, God's plan of redemption when we see the word helper here. Because God is our helper, and the woman helps us subdue and fill. All right, so let's let's look at that word fit. The next one, a helper fit for the man. What does it mean that the woman is fit for the man? Some of your Bibles uh, say a helper corresponding to the man or a helper suitable for him. Point is, what the man lacks, where he needs help, the woman is specially designed to fill that need. So the man who is alone, lacks a companion, she fits 
the role of companion. She's a perfect companion. She will be like the man in many ways, like the man in his humanity. She will think like him. She will observe, make observations like him. She will speak like him. But she'll be different. Another uh, translation of that word fit is, is opposite to. She will be different. She will be opposite to him, corresponding to him. She will be a different set of eyes, a unique perspective. Like I said, the man lacks the ability to fill the earth on his own. She will be the, the one who is fit to help him in that task, and only her. In parenting, what the man lacks in terms of softness and nurturing, the woman is made by God perfectly to provide where he is weak. She provides for those needs. The man lacks intimacy with any creature. The woman corresponds to that need. Physically, yes. But more than that, emotionally, relationally. Together, what we're seeing here, that the image really is the word fit. They are two interlocking puzzle pieces that fit together. They, they, they make complete the image of God in humanity. They are the complete picture of human nature. Formed in the image of God for the glory of God. She is a helper fit for him. So with that definition out of the way, let's move on to verses 21 and 22. How does God make her? It's different than the way he made the man. Look at verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs, closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. All right, so we know this. The animals are made out of the earth. The man is made out of the earth, the man of dust. The woman is made from the man. And she isn't just made. All right, this is, this is a fun word study that, that was really fascinating to me this week. The verb used here is one that hasn't been used yet in Genesis. So, so the verb, he made the woman, uh, that has not been used yet in Genesis. And we've seen, we've seen quite a few making verbs because the Lord has been doing a lot of making in Genesis 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that was a unique verb. It, that, that, that word there has the sense of bringing into being. He created something that wasn't there before. And then on day two, God made the expanse between the skies and the seas. And it's a different word for making. It's, a, it's more of a generic word. It's the one we see most often in Genesis 1 and 2. Almost like he did it, but there isn't much specificity to the how. The emphasis is on the who. The emphasis is on the doer, not so much the process. We saw last week when the Lord God made the man in Genesis 2, 7, he formed him. It's a new verb, another making verb. This verb is, is, is the same word that is used when a, a potter forms the clay. He sculpted the man. And here is yet a fourth making verb, doing verb, in Genesis 2, verse 22. The Lord God made the woman. When, when the Lord God made the woman, he built her. Interesting, huh? He built her. You might even have a footnote there at the bottom of your Bible if you have an ESV. Uh, he built. He built her. Think of the way that a builder builds a building. The Lord built a woman from the rib of the man. Now, out of all of the verbs for making that we have available to us just in these first two chapters, any of them would have been fine here. Any of these previous verbs for making would have been fine, but... But God, in his wisdom, has chosen to reveal something special about the way that he made the woman. If you look forward in your Bible, this verb, built, is almost exclusively used when someone builds a house or a temple. So the next time we see this verb in Genesis will be when the people build the temple tower at Babel, in Babylon. And it comes up again and again to describe the building of dwelling places, either for people or for gods or idols. The, 
the word that we translate as rib is related to that. Here, uh, we see it, and it means one of the bones out of the chest of the man's body. And sometimes in Scripture, it does mean that. But more often, this same word is used to describe the sides of a building or the structural stuff that buildings are made out of. So think of the wooden studs used to frame a house. They are the ribs of the house. We will see this word, rib, used uh, again to describe the components of the Ark of the Covenant. And later, the components of the temple. In fact, in Ezekiel, when Ezekiel describes the new temple of the, of the age of Messiah, he will use this word a whole bunch. He uses it uh, in his description of the temple uh, as to describe the sides and how the temple is built. It's made out of ribs. So in the, what we need to see here, because of the language that God has used, in the text immediate to us, Genesis chapter 2, the woman literally is made from the rib of a man. Yes. She is, as Adam will sing, actually bone of his bones, flesh of his flesh. She's made out of him. Where Adam is the one of the dust, the woman is of the man. She is to Adam as Adam is to the earth. That's immediate to us in the text, Genesis chapter 2. But canonically, when I say that, I mean in the broader story of the Bible, with the language that he has chosen for us here, the Holy Spirit is giving us a preview of something to come. In the story of redemption, we should see, because he is built like a temple, we should see that the, the woman is a type of temple. She's built as a temple is built. She is made of a rib the way that the temple will be made of ribs. And this is where it gets really interesting. Right, if you're like, you're getting into the weeds, just hold on. When, 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 when the second Adam, the Christ, comes, the Lord will, from Christ's body, the second Adam's body, create a temple to be the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. That temple is the church, the body of Christ. And that's why when we read in Ephesians 5, Paul said that the mystery hidden for us in Genesis 2, is Christ in the church. The church is Christ's body, the new temple. We can't miss that. And, and God, in his, in his just providential wisdom, has implanted even in the verbs that he uses to describe the creation of the woman, that he's given us the seed of that idea that is to come, that is revealed later by the Holy Spirit in Ephesians. Scripture is always, always pointing forward to Christ. Always. Even here at the very beginning, God is showing us what is to come. And the beauty of it, the wisdom of it, is that as the Scripture helps us to understand who the Christ to come is, it's not just all forward-looking, is it? The Scripture also helps us to understand the world around us. In the here and now, and he, and he helps us to understand, God helps us to understand our own nature and the will of God and the goodness of God and the provision of God. And we see that here. God creates the woman, brings her to the man, and, the, and, and Adam just responds with this song. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. doesn't sound very sing-songy to us. We don't know Hebrew. That's okay. If you see the way it is set aside in your Bible, it is meant to be seen as poetry because it is. It's written as poetry. So think about that. The first recorded words of a man in the history of the world are poetry, poems about his wife, about the goodness of God's gift. And that's why we like songs. Well, the words describe Adam's satisfaction. Do you see that? Man is pleased with the Lord's gift. We see that in the song. And then right here in verse 24, we get this commentary. It kind of stands out of place. So far, all the way up to this point, we've, we've gotten more narrative. And now we get this 
commentary. Where did this come from? Verse 24, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. We don't even have fathers and mothers yet. Where is this coming from? What's interesting about this is this, this isn't just Moses. It's not just some scribe who came back and wrote this later on to prove a point to his church. All right, Jesus teaches us that the creator is the one who is speaking here. The creator said this. The creator said the therefore statement. Look at, look at Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 and 5. Jesus, in the context here, he's, he's answering the Pharisees who are trying to trick him with a question. They have a question about divorce and marriage and remarriage. And Jesus says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, you see it? And said, verse 24, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So the person who spoke, verse 24, is the same person who made the people. He's the same one who created them, male and female. The speaker, verse 24, is God himself. So it's not an out-of-place commentary. It's God in his wisdom teaching us, inserting this into the, the, this first marriage narrative. He's pointing to this marriage for us that he made, and he's teaching us. The same way that he taught Adam earlier on in this chapter, he's teaching us. Teaching us about the origin of marriage and the importance of marriage and how we are to understand this marriage and all future marriages. So, seeing then that God is the one who has ordained marriage, that God wants us to learn about marriage from this text with the rest of our time, I just want us to step back and look at, at what's happening here. Look at how God has designed marriage to operate. All right, so we just have three observations that we'll make. The first is this. We see that marriage reveals God's created order. Now, where do we see that? Well, I'm, again, as I've told you before, I read Genesis the best of my ability, the way the apostles read it. When I'm looking for what does this mean, I ask the apostles. I ask the apostle Paul, uh, who tells us in 1 Corinthians what this means. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul observes, and he's inspired by the Spirit, so I give him a lot more authority than what I could observe here. Paul observes that the man is made first, and then the woman. And the woman is made for the man, not the other way around. Look at this in, in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 8 and 9. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for the man. Paul makes that assertion, that observation, amidst the argument that he's making in 1 Corinthians 11, that the husband is the head of the wife. That's what he wants to, to prove to us, and his reference point is Genesis 2. God makes the man, gives the man dominion, then he creates the woman to be fit for the man, to help the man. But it's not just, we don't just see that, that headship in the order in which things were created. Right? That's not, it's not only the order of things that shows God's hierarchical order. That argument alone would be insufficient. After all, the animals were made before the man. So, the man's not subject to them, so we have some questions. So, there's more evidence here for God's hierarchical design outside of just the order, the chronology that they were made in. Notice how in verse 19, look at this in verse 19, the Lord brings the animal to the man to see what he will name them. That's man's ruling function. God names the man. God gives dominion to the man, and then he brings the animals to the man so he can name them. God could have named the animals, but God passed that responsibility, that, that, that headship, that rule to the man. So the man names the animals, and that is God's good design. Now look at verse 22. In verse 22, the Lord creates the woman and brings the woman to the man. Same language. And the man names her. 
The Lord doesn't name her. He named Adam, but he doesn't name her. If he had named her, that would have indicated that the Lord alone is her head. Nor does she name herself. If she had named herself, that would have shown us that she is her own head. Rather, the man names her. And this order is God's design, and it shows the, the, the hierarchy, hierarchy, saying that right? Of authority in creation. And it goes this way. God on high rules over the man. Then the man rules over his wife. And then underneath, the wife and the husband are the rest of the animals and all of creation. So Genesis 2 shows us that created order. It's built into the marriage. It's built into the way that God created things. The trouble comes in Genesis chapter 3 when we see God's order turned upside down. The animal, the beast, instructs the woman. And then the woman instructs the man. And who's listening to God? Nobody. Nobody listens to God. And so what is God's response? He sets it all back in order again. He puts the animal back in its place on the ground. And then he tells the woman that her offspring will rule over this animal. Then he tells the, the woman that she will, again, be subject to the man. And the man again names her. That's when she gets her name, Eve, the mother of all living. And that shows, again, his headship over her. And finally, the Lord exiles the man from the garden, showing that he's still Lord over all. You see it? Built into creation, before the fall, is this hierarchy of authority. God is the head of man. The man is the head of woman. The man and woman are co-rulers over the animals. In the fall, what really is happening in the fall is the subversion of that order. And the resulting work of God is to reestablish that order. And the easy application is this. Husbands, husbands, lead your wives. Lead them in righteousness and obedience to God for the glory of God. Wives, as we see later on in Scripture again and again, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. Why as unto the Lord? Because he's submitting to the Lord. Together, we all honor the Lord when we submit ourselves to the order of God's good design. That's our first observation about God's design for marriage. It shows God's hierarchy of order. The second, though, is that marriage is a partnership. Marriage is clearly not just a chain of command. It's made to be a partnership. We see this in a number of places in the text. The first is right here in God's declaration. They shall become one flesh. Together, they are one body. The marriage itself is what we would call a, an emergent entity. The two become one unity. So no longer does the man belong to himself. He belongs to his wife. No longer does the woman belong to herself. She belongs to her husband. Neither belongs to themselves anymore. Equally, equally, they are to give of themselves for the sake of the new unity. We see that in chapter 2, but we, saw, we see this equality and partnership going all the way back to Genesis 1 as well. In Genesis 1.27, God makes it very clear that the man and woman are both created in his likeness. Genesis 1.27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. In his own image. There's no distinction in the quality of God's image. There's no distinction in the condition of God's image. They are, the man and woman together are of equal value. They are of equal worth. They are of equal dignity. The image and likeness of God are equally in the man and in the woman. Therefore, in partnership, because marriage is a partnership, they are to have dominion over the creatures of the earth. Together, they are to subdue the earth. Together, they share in the blessing of God equally as well. That be fruitful and multiply blessing is not just for the man. It's not just for the woman. 
It is their responsibility and blessing together as partners, as one body. So, application from this. Brothers, remember, your wife is an image bearer of God. Love her and honor her accordingly. Sisters, your husband is an image bearer of God. Love him and honor him accordingly. You are both in equal in value. You are both equal in worth and in dignity. So you are to love each other in response to who you are and who the other is. So on the other side of the negative, to demean one another, to, to cut one another down, to treat each other shamefully, is to undermine the reality that you are both equally made in the image of God, isn't it? So here, just in this chapter, we have an order of authority in creation, a hierarchy of authority, and in marriage. There's also equality within the marriage partnership as well. Final observation, the marriage, and I struggled to find words for this, uh, so if you have something better, you can write in your notes, that's okay. But here's what I put, the marriage is an exclusive entity, exclusive entity created by God for his purposes. So we get this from God's command. Look at the command. The man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So, so the Lord has given the man the woman. And what God observes for us in verse 24 is that he no longer, the man no longer belongs to his parents. He's to leave them. He belongs to the, the, the new family, the new marriage, the new unity. And this new relationship is exclusive. Only the husband and wife belong to it. So think of this as a loyalty issue in, in, in terms of, you know, when the rubber hits the road. This is a loyalty issue. Once the man enters into covenant union with his wife, that is where his new primary loyalty will be. His primary concern now is for the well-being of his wife and the children that will come through that marriage. This does not mean that he's not concerned for his mom and dad. Right? The fifth commandment, to honor your father and mother, that does not change because of marriage. In 1 Timothy 5, there's an expectation that the, that the man would continue to, to take care of, of his mother, especially if she is widowed. He's responsible for the physical provision of his mother if his father dies. God's command here in verse 24 does not negate honoring your mother and father. It does not negate caring for your aging or widowed parents. And yet, God commands the man must, he shall leave his parents. His loyalty and his obligation are now to his wife. And if you're wondering, well, you know, doesn't the wife have to leave too? Right? Well, the, this, uh, the reason why this command is only given to, the, to the, the man here is that it is assumed culturally that the woman would be leaving the family. There'd be no question about her leaving her family. Think about just as you read the Old Testament. In many of the cases that we see, the, the women are from other tribes or they're from faraway places. And they married into the man's family. So she's already left her father and mother in order to partake in this marriage, geographically especially. But because the man is most likely staying on the family property, the family inheritance, the command is for him. And the command is, is to the man, for the sake of the health of your marriage, man, your first loyalty is not to mama, it is to your wife. So culturally, this is a necessary command for the man, especially if he's living right next door to mom. But in principle, in principle, where the, where the cultural practices don't, like our culture, where the, the cultural practices don't provide for the woman leaving her father and mother, the command also, I think, applies to her. So sisters, the command is to you as well. Leave your father and mother. 
your primary obligation is to your new family, your husband, your children. This means in real life, husband and wife are no longer beholden to their mother's requests if those requests interfere with the unity of the marriage. And they are no longer beholden to their father's requests, especially if that could interfere with the marriage. So given that this is the Lord's will for marriages, and that the Lord is commanding the man to leave his father and mother, I want to speak to parents of adult children for a moment. If your kids are married, you need to remember that their primary obligation is to their marriage, not your happiness. So don't meddle. Don't interfere with the one flesh union that God has brought together. Don't, don't manipulate. <laughs> don't manipulate, manipulate your son or daughter in such a way as to bring just a little feeling of guilt or a little bit of tension into that marriage. God has made them a new family unit. And as Christ commands which he will tell us later on in Matthew, let no man or woman tear them apart. God made this new family unit. Nobody should tear it apart or seek to needle it at all. Rather, encourage them. Encourage that marriage to flourish. Encourage that marriage to thrive by giving that new family autonomy. And I can promise you, by serving God in this way, you will be happier. I promise. All right, so because God has made a new exclusive unit, the man and woman must leave their old family unit. See that first of all. The second thing we see, though, in verse 24 about this new family is that the man is to hold fast to his wife. The old King James says he will... He shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. And that rhymes, and that's nice. But in modern English, cleaving doesn't mean much to us. Uh, we have cleavers, which cut things, and we have cleavage, which is something else. And neither is particularly helpful in understanding what it means to cleave. The modern translation, hold fast, is much better. The image here. Hold fast, not the other one. The image is that the man is to actively be keeping his wife. He's to stick to her. Though God has made them both one, right? God created the one flesh union. God is commanding here that the man be particularly involved in maintaining that unity. There's a close connection here between the Lord's charge to the man to keep the garden, protect the garden, and the man's charge, or the Lord's charge to the man to hold fast to his wife. They're very similar in, 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 in practice. He has a protective role in the garden, in keeping the garden. He has a protect, provide, and preserve role in his family. It is his God-given duty to, to strive to maintain the health and the unity of his marriage. Think about in, in Philippians, when, or Ephesians rather, when God says that the Spirit has made us one as a church, but all of us have the responsibility to maintain the unity. Same thing here. God created the unity. The man in particular has the responsibility to maintain the unity, to hold fast to his wife, keep her near. How, how, does, how does he do that? Does he just like, hug her all the time? What, what does he talking about here? Well, first of all, if the man is holding fast to his wife, let's just be simple and blunt. He's not holding fast to someone else's wife. Okay, so for starters, to uh, uh, hold fast to your wife, keep it simple and don't commit adultery. All right? But positively, now that the easy one is out of the way, positively, holding fast to your wife, maintaining the unity of the marriage involves three things. All right, this is, these are the last things that we'll look at this morning. We find these in Ephesians 5. 
5, 28, and 29. So we already saw that this first marriage is a mystery that refers to Christ and the church. And then what Paul does in Ephesians is show, well, if Christ's love for the church is our model for perfect marriage or for good marriage, then let's look at the ways that he does that. And these are the three things that he tells us. He's to love her, cherish her, and nourish her. So Christ loves us. He loved the church by giving his own life for the church. Therefore, husbands, love your wives sacrificially. Consider her needs greater than yours, and you will be holding fast to her. Secondly, Christ cherishes the church. He does that by warmly caring for the church. The, the only other place we see this word is in, in 1 Thessalonians, the way that the Lord, like a, a mother hen, cares for us. So, so Christ is warmly caring for the church, providing for the church's needs. He sent his Holy Spirit to be present with us. That's his cherishing action. So husbands, cherish your wives by giving your wife time. Give her your presence. Let your provision for her not be cold and obligatory, but warm and joyful. That's cherishing. Finally, Christ nourishes the church. He nourishes the church as he's caring for his own body. That's the instruction we have in Ephesians. He feeds us, doesn't he? He feeds us with the word. He provides for us in a way that promotes our growth and our flourishing so that he can present him to himself. So husbands, do likewise. Lead your families spiritually in the word. Seek to nourish your wife spiritually and emotionally and in such a way that she flourishes. And in that way, you are holding fast to her. So our holding fast is to be modeled after the way that Christ holds fast to the church. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. Yes, husbands, hold fast to your wives. 